Good morning. It's good to be with you all again. Thank you all so much for welcoming Sabrina and I. I see uh, a good amount of familiar faces, but also a lot of new faces. And so uh, we're looking forward to getting to know all of you at the uh, spaghetti lunch. I love spaghetti. So, yes. Yes. All right, if you have your Bible, uh, would you please turn to 1 Samuel 17? We have a bit of a longer passage, so we're just going to jump right in. This is 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in, lo- excuse me, in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants." But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. 
As he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the, this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of the, his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. David, then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in one hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, 
whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you from my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and the spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious, most heavenly Father, who has called us here this morning to worship you, Lord, that you might meet with your people today. We thank you uh, that it is Christ who brings us here together, Lord, and it is Christ whom we receive now in your word and we will receive in your supper. We pray, Lord, now that as uh, my words go out, Lord, that uh, my words would be pleasing to you, that the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would give you great pleasure. O Lord, our rock and redeemer, we ask that you would bless this time. Your son's name, amen. So sometimes when I'm preaching for a sermon, I like to go over the passage with my wife and my children, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Well, as I was reading this story earlier this week with my children, my six-year-old Eloise, she rather rationally exclaims, right when I'm explaining what Goliath looks like, she just flatly states, this story isn't true. And my wife and I asked her why she thought that, and she rather rationally once again said, well, giants aren't real. This, of course, then led into a discussion about how tall Goliath might have been and whether or not human beings can actually grow that tall and, you know, the, the, the science of it all. And after some awkward discussion, uh, my wife and I just sort of asked her, well, you know, do you think the Bible is true? And to our relief, she said yes, and so we just sort of awkwardly moved on from there. As I've been preparing for this sermon, 
I've kept considering her statement. Giants aren't real. And how I, like many of you in this room, are inclined to agree. We do not like to acknowledge the existence of giants or dragons or talking snakes or anything that might seem a little too outlandish to our modern sensibilities. And we can actually see that in how we commonly interpret this passage. I listened to one TED Talk given by a more famous journalist, Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote a book called David and Goliath. And uh, it's a bit of a a self-help book or perhaps something for for business strategy and how to be successful. And so he gives this TED Talk, and in it he gives this fairly pragmatic interpretation of the story, of the story of David and Goliath. And Gladwell, he accredits David's success to simply outsmarting Goliath, who apparently suffered from acromegalia, which was likely a tumor on a part of his brain, not only accounting for his giganticism, but also probably made it likely that David, or excuse me, that Goliath could not see very well. David was the only one really smart enough to pick up on all of this. And because of that, he chose not to engage with Goliath in close combat, but use a sling. And if you're smart like David, and if you look for the devil in the details like David, you too can be a David and slay the own giants in, in your life. Now, while I appreciate Gladwell's interpretation to at least keep the story in the field of history, I, I think much of it, if not all of it, is all speculation and conjecture and it, quite frankly, just says more than the text itself actually says. But I do think many of us still tend to interpret this, this text with the same sort of pragmatism. While we wouldn't say that this story of David and Goliath is a fairy tale, we still very much often treat it like one of Aesop's fables, where there's just simply a moral lesson for us to observe and learn from. Well, it's a typical formula for this. Well, it often goes something like this. David remained faithful to God in the face of giants. David delivered, or excuse me, God delivered David from the hand of the giant because he was faithful. And so God will deliver you from the giants in your life if you are faithful. That's the, that's the common formula for stories like these. It's not as scientific as Gladwell's acromeglia, but it is completely pragmatic. We still talk about faith, so it feels Christian, but it's really nothing short of pragmatism. And why is that? I think it's because, if we're honest, we truly believe giants aren't real. Or at least they're not as big and as bad as the Bible makes them out to be. We truly believe that with enough know-how, enough God-given wisdom, and enough faith, we can be like David, be victorious, overcome any circumstance that life throws at us. And in the very least, if we can't overcome our own problems, then at least with a little more wisdom, a little more faith, then maybe they can become manageable. But what the story confronts us with, and I think what the Bible continually shoves in our faces, is that life is constantly lived out 
in the giant shadow of powers that are much greater than ourselves. Powers that no matter how hard we try, we cannot overcome. What am I talking about? Well, each and every day, you and I live in the giant shadow of sin and of death. Whether you know it or not, you are quite helpless underneath this giant. Friends, in, in, in a word of one Christian uh, counselor and psychologist, his name's David Powelson, uh, who talks a lot about fear and anxiety, he, he says the truth about fear that no one likes to admit is that you and I actually have very good reasons to be afraid. You live in a world facing forces way bigger than yourself. You are mortal. You do not have the strength or the capacity to control the most important parts of your own life, and especially when we talk about death. And if you have children, you can't guarantee the outcome of their life, not just what they're going to do for a job or who they will marry, but whether they actually will live or die. And some of us, I think, know that truth quite well. Many of us have many reasons to be joyful in this world, in this life, but I think for all of us, we also have many reasons, probably many more reasons, to actually be a nervous wreck. Those of us who have felt the sting of death, we've watched a loved one labor through cancer or lost a child or have come home to a new sound, or an empty sound of an empty home. We've had to climb into a now empty bed. You know that there are giants greater than you in this world. And then there's the giant of sin, the one that gets his teeth in you and will not let go, the one that drags you every single day to the same old addictions. And I'm not just talking about drugs or pornography or alcohol. I'm talking about the more obvious problems. That hardness that won't go away towards your spouse. Those sour words that you continually breathe over your children. That undying resentment you feel towards your friends or your boss or your family that you don't want to call hate, but it sure does look like it. You know that you were called to love them, but you just can't see how. And this giant feeling of regret you feel day after day after day because you're not winning this battle against sin and temptation. Friends, you and I are tossed to and fro by giants every day. These things destroy marriages, they break up families, they turn the hearts of children against their parents and the hearts of parents against their children. And they separate us from life and all that is good. And they separate us from God himself. And what you and I need this morning is not David's cleverness or David's wisdom or even to look at David first as this example, this exemplar of faith that we ought to have. Yes, 
He is the exemplar of faith. This, cer- this story is certainly given for you and for your faith. But David is not first and foremost a picture of you or me, but David is first and foremost a picture of the champion that we need. And so what I want us to do this morning is just to walk through this story. I know it's a longer passage, but I want us to get familiar with these characters, and we're going to see who's who in this story. We're going to divide it up into three different acts, and so that's going to divide our time. It'll be three different points. And so the first act is what we'll call a snake in the garden. A snake in the garden. So the story begins in a stalemate in the valley of Elah, the Israelites, are on one side of the mountain and the Philistines are on the other and Saul and his army have a valley between them. That's the scene. And the story then moves on to introduce this great foe of the Israelite army. And notice that in describing Goliath, the passage really takes its time. Starting in verse 4, it says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits of a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung up between his shoulders. <clears throat> Excuse me. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. Now, the, the Bible does not spend this much time describing its characters, if you've noticed. But here, the author wants you to get a very good look at Goliath. He wants you to see this bronze warrior who's equipped with this latest military garb and weaponry, who's not only massive, but he is seemingly impenetrable. He is greater than the Israelite army can go against. And what's interesting here is that in the description of Goliath's armor, this Hebrew word here that we have for the coat of mail, it actually says a coat of scales or scale armor. And, and that's not necessarily surprising. That type of armor was used during this time. But it is interesting that this is the only time that Scripture chooses to describe this type of armor with this word scales in it, which all other time this word for scales appears, it's always to describe some sort of creature like a fish or even a dragon. And so the image of Goliath being painted for us here so vividly, what we are to see here is not simply a great warrior but really a serpent in the promised land. There is a snake once again in the garden coming against God's people and provoking them. It says that for 40 days the Philistine came near and took his stand morning and evening. And so here in this scene, Israel is recapitulated back to the book of Joshua as they are entering the promised land, hearing these reports of giants in the land. And they were afraid. And here, once again, we have a giant before them. And what does it say? Saul and all Israel were dismayed and greatly afraid by these words. 
What Israel needs is another Joshua. But Saul, who's supposed to be the sword of Israel, who's supposed to be the protector of God's people, no longer possesses the Spirit of God, and he is paralyzed by fear. Like the rest of the men, he looks on the outside rather than remembering what he has heard about God's promises for his people. And as they say, so goes the king, so goes the people. Saul and the people are led away by their sight rather than being grounded in faith by their ears and by what they have heard. They wallow in fear because of it. So the serpent remains in the garden, the giant remains in the promised land, and there is no champion that can be found to face him. And here we ought to ask ourselves a question. Would you, would you be the one to step forward? Would you be the one to have total, unwavering confidence for God's people? Would you keep the faith and remember all of God's promises that he has said for Israel and for the land and what he has said about victory over enemies? Would you be the one to step forward and say, yes, I have faith in my God. I will go up for these people. Or would you be like Saul and the people? Well, perhaps one helpful question we can ask ourselves to help us answer that question is, how is it going right now? How is it going right now? You might not have a bronze giant before you right now in your face threatening you, but you do have other circumstances in your life that are facing you. You do have other trials and difficulties in your life that are facing you. For some of us, those difficulties might be as basic as worrying about the day and our daily bread. And we struggle to trust God that he is going to give us what he has promised. For others, those worries might be, or at least seem, a little more complicated. A giant is certainly scary, but at least it's, it's somewhat simple. It's trying to kill you. But what about the future of your job? What about your marriage? What about your children? You have no explicit promise from God concerning these things, and yet God has told you to be anxious for nothing. So let me ask you again, how's that going? And then there are some of you who are looking death in the face, either for yourself or perhaps for a loved one. The cancer is back, the remission is over, and you feel scared. Friends, life is a vicious, unrelenting beast that you can never quite seem to get your arms around. Life is unmanageable, and you are powerless to tame it. And when life bucks up against you, as it has, and it most certainly will again, how is your faith then? 
I know we want to be a David, and that is good. But I think the truth is, the honest truth is that you and I actually have more in common with Saul and more in common with these people than we like to admit. So, how do we defeat the giant? Well, this brings us to our next scene. This is what we will call a shepherd for the people. The first time we're introduced to David is in the previous chapter, where he is called in from tending his father's sheep. And once again, this picture of David that we see here is that of a shepherd. David is first and foremost a shepherd. And his father, Jesse, he was too old to fight, and his three sons go in his stead. And so like Joseph in Genesis, who is sent out to look after his brothers by Jacob, so is David here sent out to look after his brother's welfare. He leaves his sheep with the tenant and does as his father commands him. And he comes to the Babylon just in time to hear Goliath step forward once again. Only this time when David hears this repute of the Philistine, he does not cower away, but rather he hears a reason to act in judgment. David asks, who is this person who has defied the armies of Israel? Who is this dog that ought to be stoned for his blasphemy? And is then told that, excuse me, is then told to David the king's offer. Saul's offer of riches to marry the princess and to be what I think we would all really hope to be, which is tax-exempt. Now that is a very sweet reward, and yet no one can be found. And when David sees this giant, though, and he hears his words and he hears of the prize, he has a very different response. David says, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And this is not David's way of sort of ignoring all that has just said and just kind of wants to hear more about, about the, the prize. This is actually David's way of saying, yes, I will take up the task. But of course, this response invites conflict. Like Joseph was persecuted by his older brothers, who were no doubt jealous of their younger brother who would eventually rule over them, so here again we see a similar theme. David's eldest brother rebukes him, suspecting that David is just sort of there for the entertainment. He's just there to see the show. But David is not put off by this persecution. He turns away from him. And he continues to take up the task. Saul, of course, he hears that he has a volunteer, only it seems that he is quickly disappointed. When Saul looks at David, he is put off by what he sees because he does not see a champion. Rather, he sees weakness. He sees a, a young boy who's probably grown too big for his britches. He's young, seemingly brash, and idealistic. And Saul says to him, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. 
But here, the shepherd, the gentle protector of his flock, is once again not put off. He says to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, I took, excuse me, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him. No one takes my sheep. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Goliath, this scaled serpent, is just another beast that needs to be put down. And this shepherd, who is soft and gentle towards his sheep, and who shows an abundance of meekness towards his flock, and who guards them with his life, and who's ready to lay down his life for them, he will not let his sheep be terrorized and dragged off to die. And David's faith shines through here even in his response. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul then responds with a seemingly pious, go and the Lord be with you. But we see here that he still doesn't get it. Saul still wants a champion of his own imagination. He wants a champion of his own expectations. Saul wanted to be a kingdom, to look like the world, to dress like the world, to use the same means that the world relies on for its success. And friends, this is so often our issue. Like Saul, we like to dictate to God what our salvation ought to look like. You and I pine for saviors, the same type of saviors that the world pines after. And we even bring that mentality into the church because we want Christianity to not look like what the Bible describes so often, weakness, humility, and holiness gained through suffering and sacrifice. No, we want Christianity to look strong and attractive and powerful and prosperous. There really is a deep lesson here for the church and how we think about success, but I think that that's another sermon. And when we do that, the church just looks awkward. And here, David just looks awkward. He chooses to cast off these things and to meet Goliath as he is. As a shepherd with a staff and a stone ready to save his people from the mouth of a beast. And he does just that. In faith, David comes down 
to meet Goliath. And this brings us to our final scene, which is the champion we need. Now, the sort of single combat that we see here, this was fairly common. This was a, a way you can see the practicality of it all rather than sacrificing your whole army for another and, and resorting in an immense amount of bloodshed. This one-on-one -on -one champion versus champion sort of combat was certainly much more practical, but we also see here that it was often understood as this contest between the gods. And we can see that here in verse 43, this verbal exchange that Goliath and David has. Goliath curses David by his gods, and David responds in kind. He comes to him in the name of Yahweh, who is in ultimate control of the battle. And so David is not simply Saul's champion, and David is not simply the people's champion, but it's important to see David is God's champion on behalf of his people. David is God's chosen instrument, instrument for his people because every bit of salvation belongs to the Lord. Goliath comes towards David, and it says that David runs towards him. He reaches in his satchel, he pulls out a stone, and he slings it, and he hurls it towards Goliath's forehead, and the giant falls face down in the dirt. In verse 50, it says, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David, and David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the story of a shepherd boy defeating a giant for his people. With a sling and a stone and the very sword of his enemy. This is a story of how a boy, most importantly, defeated a giant by faith. So what's the takeaway for us from a story like this? Or to come back to our earlier question, how do you defeat the giant? How do you defeat the giant? Well, David trusted in his God to see him through, and this story is no doubt a beautiful display of faith. The story very much has something to say to you about faith, but friends, what I want us to see this morning is that this story is not simply one that is about faith, but this is a story that is for your faith. The story, the familiar story of David and Goliath is not just about faith, but it is for your faith. What, what, do, what do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you another question. When you hear the story of David and Goliath, do you hear a story of law? Or do you hear a story of gospel? Do you hear a story that first presses upon you the type of faith that you ought to have and the type of person that you ought to be? Or do you first hear a story of how God's beautiful and mighty hand works to save his people? This story is no doubt gives us this display of this magnificent caliber of faith that David had. And I, I don't want to 
Are you against that? That is a faith that, of course, we, we want to emulate. I'd hope so. But do not miss the most obvious point about this story, which is the true purpose of this story, which is ultimately to point you towards the person that we hinge the entirety of our faith upon. That is towards Jesus Christ, who is the champion that we need. Here in the Valley of Elah, we do not just get a picture of a shepherd boy defeating a Philistine giant, but we get a a glimmer, we get a preview of the one who was to come and the one who has come to do what David did to Goliath, to our worst enemy. This story is another echo from Genesis when God cursed Satan and he said to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, when you hear this familiar story of David and Goliath, I want you to hear the good news of the gospel for you. For in it we get a picture of a great and gentle shepherd who did not come in glory, who did not come to the world's expectations, but he came as we needed him to be. In humility and in meekness. In the form of a man not coming with weapons or with strength or with power, but with an ugly cross. And he hung there until the battle was over and the job was finished for you in order that he may triumph over all rulers and authority and put your sins to death and Satan, your persecutor, and the one who condemns you and accuses you and to cut off his head. Friends, this story is not just about faith, but this is a story for your faith. And as Jesus said to his disciples just before he went to the cross, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. May you be at peace this day as you walk through the valley of the shadow of giants who are far greater than you. But may you rest in the peace knowing that all your enemies have already been slain. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our champion, we thank you that you came as we needed you to be. And Lord, though it was not to our expectation, and though we persecuted you, Lord, you still saw the task done. And this is good news for us. Lord, we pray that we would continue to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we would now walk in the freedom and in the victory which you and you alone have gained for us. 
May your name be praised. In your son's name, amen.